Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 28, The Bushman War of 1739. Last episode, we heard about the growing number of clashes reported in the run-up to this full-scale war that didn't last long, but extended in a great arc from the Picketback in the northwest to the valley of the Langeberg in the southeast. It was the most extensive war between the settlers and the Khoisans since Van Riebeck had arrived in 1652. Settlers were chased out of almost 60 cattle stations and farms, and more importantly, the stated aim of the Khoisan was to drive the Dutch out of their land and possibly out of South Africa. More alarmingly, some of the Khoisan raiders were armed with muskets instead of the spears and bows and arrows. Many of the Khoisan leaders were also former servants of the Dutch farmers, which made for a particularly bitter confrontation, as you're going to hear. The effect of the Dutch illegal raiding into the land of the Great Namakwa we heard about in episode 27 was to trigger this war. On the 22nd of October 1738, Lorenz, who was the Landrost at Stellenbosch, reported that his relative Augustus Lorenz had been robbed of cattle by what he called the Bushmen living near the little Lamakwa. Since Augustus Lorenz had been one of the supporters of that illegal expedition, he was reaping just desserts. Furthermore, the Bushmen living near the little Lamakwa were the people of Swartboy and Titus, those two Khoi who were part of that expedition but afterwards were cut out of the deal when it came to their share of the loot. They knew exactly who they were going to target. The Khoisan were too numerous for a small commander to chase in the latest case of rustling, but the farmer sent a Khoi Khoi servant to ask the robbers why they were stealing. The answer shook the farmers. The Khoisan told the messenger that they did this in order to drive them out of their land, and that was just the beginning, and that they would do the same to all the people living there, and that if the Dutch would not leave, they would burn all the wheat that was growing in the felt as soon as it ripened so as to cause the Dutch to leave their land. That was the declaration of war. From now on through to the end of 1739, that war would rage across the region, starting with a few skirmishes and escalating constantly. Even now, in late 1738, VOC reports revealed that the settlers had sparked this firestorm because of the illegal expeditions and robberies of Khoi cattle. Lorenz and his cohorts had broken the VOC rule of not crossing into the little Namakwa and great Namakwa countryside. The settlers had pushed all the way across the Orange River, hundreds of miles beyond that boundary. So the VOC duly appointed a Feldkorporal Andries Berger to head off to the district across the Ulufans River. His instructions were to make peace with the Khoisan and then to investigate the causes of this war. Another three felt corporals were appointed for the Bockefeld, Gudini and the Ulufans River. These three were also selected based on the fact that they were not involved in any way with the settlers and the farmers in these contested lands. In November 1738, two Khoi servants of Picketback farmer Gerrit Moss slaughtered four of his sheep and hid the carcasses. The two Khoi named Witteboy and Wiltskut sent word to their friend David and three Khoi women to join them for a royal feast of Gerrit Moss's mutton. But a slave working for Moss must have got wind of what was going on and joined them. Vitteboy and Vilskut killed the slave instead of sharing their barbecue, or what we call a braai, then went on something of a rampage. They stole another sheep from Peter van Sale's farm on the Olifants River, then broke into Jakubus Lowe's farmhouse in Jakal's flat and stole a tinderbox, knife, flints and bread. Not finished, they headed off to Albert van Sale's farm next door and stole a musket and immediately decided to put it to good use. They went back to the Olifants River with their friends, seeking to shoot Albert van Sale. Finding the farmer, they opened fire, but Bitterboy missed. Other Khoisan heard about these attacks and decided it was now time to join this impromptu uprising. 
The VOC was growing alarmed and ordered Karl Christoffel Kruntz, who was the substitute Landrost at Stellenbosch, to confiscate cattle from the farmers that had been stolen from the Khoi. Perhaps that would settle the Khoi down. Kunitz was told he also had to drag the farmers responsible for the expedition to the great Namatwa all the way back to Stellenbosch to face the Council of Justice. Of course, this was going to place the families of the offending settlers in danger, and they resented the order. The task of locating the cattle was difficult enough. Remember, these had been distributed across the Ulufans' farms to friends and relatives. But he was helped by the confessions of two of the expedition members, Matthijs Willems and Peter de Bruyne. They had been languishing in the dungeon back at the castle and had eventually revealed that over a thousand head of cattle had been stolen from the Namakwa. Kunitz only managed to find 279 beasts, but it was the manner in which he went about the collecting that riled the farmers. You see, he used Khoisan for help. He crossed the line as far as they were concerned. Eventually, by the end of January 1739, he reported back to Lawrence, the Stenebosch Landros, that a number of farmers had refused to obey his orders. The alarm bells rang back in Stellenbosch when they heard a notorious settler troublemaker had arrived in the northern frontier zone, the deserter and former company sergeant, Estienne Bartbier. Frontier farmers joined him as he called for a rural rebellion against the VOC, and social banditry accelerated. The Boers on the frontier now began lashing out at all Khoi nearby. This was not going to end happily for anyone. Estienne Barbier had joined the company in 1734 as a soldier and rose to the rank of sergeant fairly rapidly. Then Barbier accused the company officer of fraud and embezzlement. What happened instead was that he was tried and found guilty of mutiny and thrown into the castle Donkerhut, the dungeon. Barbier escaped, but now he wanted revenge and had been radicalized. He found his way into the northern country and lived on the farm of a widow in Drakenstein. A number of other disaffected colonists met up with him. These were the farmers who had had their cattle confiscated by Kunitz. The Frenchman was a natural leader and well-educated. He took up the cause as a rebel fighting against company tyranny. He also decided to target the Khoi, thus fighting a war on two fronts, both the company and the Khoi. Barbier set to work and wrote a document listing grievances against the company, then managed to make it to Drakenstein unnoticed, whereupon he nailed this document to the door of the church. He accused the governor of supporting thieves who'd stolen the Boer farmer's cattle. Of course, we know they'd stolen these from the Khoi. In a nutshell, his argument went like this. The governor and Landros, he called a king of rogues, had believed the words of what Barbier called unbaptized hottentots who know nothing of salvation or damnation. And the Landros was going to give the cattle to what he called the governor's Hottentot cronies. He blamed the Landros for the increased Khoi rustling, saying they now believed they had more rights than the settlers. His slurs against the Khoi did not end there. And in addition, he continued, the Hottentots wish to violate the worthy Christian women, saying they have nothing to fear, alleging that the Landros shall listen to them rather than the Christian people. And here we have the essence of what would throw panic into white settlers and frontiersmen, the fear that the Khoi would do to their women what they'd been doing to the Khoi women. This is a fascinating insight into the racial attitudes of frontier colonists at the time and has persisted pretty much through to the modern era. Barbier was declared an outlaw or fuchelfrei, buried free. They offered a reward for his arrest, but Barbier was not betrayed, a measure of just how crucial he had become in the settler narrative. 
This uprising amongst the frontiersmen then caused the company to do a 180 degrees and went back on its word to the various Khoisan complainants. In March 1739, the government passed a resolution that the farmers could take back any cattle which they recognised as theirs. Talk about chaos. The company then added to this perfidy in April with another resolution that they would reconfiscate the cattle from the Khoisan and name them as Plato, Vulcanus, Arisi, Kharin, Swartboy and Titus. Adding insult to injury, they said the Khoi had lied about their cattle being stolen in the first place, despite Khoi bodies literally littering the felt. Watching all of this with open mouths, no doubt, were the Namakwa. Back in Stellenbosch, the Landros congratulated himself on reconciling with the colonists. Of course, his action had the opposite effect on the Khoisan. Things were now going to move swiftly. On the 20th of April 1739, news began circulating in Stellenbosch that the livestock of Leandert Lowe, Tobias Mostat's widow, and Johannes Mostat had been stolen by Hottentots in the vicinity of the Ulifons River and Jakals Flay. Worse, widow Mostat's knecht and three slaves had been killed in the attack. About a hundred Khoisan had arrived at Lowe's farm, and before they drove off the cattle, the knecht had suddenly appeared and shot one of the robbers dead. The rest ran off, but they were back the next day with five members of the Bokofeld Khoikhoi who had muskets, and they shot down the knecht without so much as a bayou leaf. They stole seven more muskets from the house, as well as gunpowder and lead, then kidnapped two slaves and drove away around 500 sheep and 70 cattle. It's believed that Swartboy and Titus were behind this attack, although they weren't in the Sunfelt themselves at that moment. A general panic spread through the northern frontier, and all the colonists began to drive their livestock south, abandoning their farms. At the heart of this disturbance, 10 farms were burned and 48 others were abandoned. More than 700 head of cattle and 3,000 sheep were swept away by the Khoisan, who now had at least 13 muskets between them. The frontier was indeed in flames, and instead of diffusing the situation, the flip-flopping company representatives had ignited a real Khoisan uprising. Furthermore, the company dreamed up another harebrained scheme, which was to use the Fuchelfrey thug and deserter Babir as their own mercenary. The councillor responsible for this lunacy was none other than Johannes Krewachen, who we heard about last episode, and had been involved in the illegal expedition to the Great Namakwa, where Captain Hull was killed. Yes, you would say, it's easy enough for us to criticise when there's chaos, but the point is the chaos was caused by anarchic frontiersmen who thought they could get away with murdering Khoi and stealing their cattle. All attempts at parading a so-called civilised approach had been thrown out of the ox wagon. Krewachen suggested that the company hire Estien Barbier and the other angry frontiersmen to form up a commando to deal with the Khoi uprising. The distorted logic worked like this. Everyone would see that the frontiersmen were forced to join the commando and then would be publicly humiliated. Thus, both the Europeans and the Khoi faced justice. It was a cynical but expedient suggestion and, of course, hapless. They gave Barbier license to go on the rampage, basically. By the 10th of May, 1739, Krewachen had assembled a motley crew of 36 men, 12 were Khoikhoi, and proceeded to cross the Ulifants River. Just before they left, a small commando had bumped into Swartboy and Titus and confiscated 68 of their 83 cattle and took away the muskets despite the two Khoisan complaining they needed these to shoot elephants. No one believed that. After crossing the Ulifants River, the commando split into two groups. 30 men went in one direction, 
and the smaller group of six headed eastwards into the Bockerfeld, led by Krevach. A few miles later, near the burned-out farm of Seybrand van Dijk, the colonists spotted a Khoisan kraal and approached cautiously. Lookouts there shouted, War has been inflicted on us by the Dutch! There were more shouts this time, instructions from a woman telling her man to shoot the posse. Krewachen ordered his commander to attack, but the Khoi withdrew into a large cave. Shots were exchanged, and Krewachen was wounded when a bullet ricocheted off his musket stock, hitting him in the left hand and chest. The colonists kept up a steady fire into the cave when they began to hear moans and believed a number of koi had been hit. Nearby, other koi-san hidden in more caves suddenly appeared and fired poisoned arrows at the colonists. By now, they were fearful of being overrun by the koi and said it was better to retire with the 46 captured koi cattle than to bother about trying to seize the more than 400 sheep they'd seen at the kraal. They withdrew back to Seybrad van Dijk's farm, where Krewachen was patched up, and they waited for the other section of the commando to report back. When they did, they heard that one colonist had been shot dead and two others wounded in another part of the Bockerfeld, but the section managed to seize livestock. A day later, the farms of Jochem Kukumur and Hendrik Kruger were razed to the ground, and Kruger's wheat field was set alight. By the 23rd of May, Krewachen received information that Swartboy, Titus and nine other Khoisan of the little Namakwa had carried off the cattle of Albert van Seil along with a musket and a slave. There was little more they could do though and Krewachen ordered a return to Stellenbosch. The commander returned to the Cape where Krewachen submitted his report. They had seized 103 cattle and 530 sheep and this time the Khoi working for the commander were actually given one head of cattle each as a reward and the rest of the cattle were returned to various farms. The uprising continued, but Krewachen suggested a solution. Another commando should be sent out immediately under the leadership of real army officers. At least two surgeons should join. Two military posts were planned on the Ulifants River, one at Barmabat and the other at Kompany's Drift. Nine soldiers should be based here so that they could support future commanders. The Council of Policy decided to adopt these proposals and ordered residents of Stellenbosch and Drakenstein to join the commander along with other citizens of the Cape District who had farms in the northwest Cape. That order fell on deaf ears. The governor hadn't bargained on the less than enthusiastic response from the colonists to the call to arms. This disconnect between the Dutch elite in the southern Cape and the frontier Boer was going to become a gulf which would be exposed at times of crisis over the next 200 years. Back in 1739, when the Landros put out the call for citizen force troops, so to speak, he was met with a resounding no by the Stellenbosch farmers. Captain Tienus Boerter and Lieutenant Johannes Lowe trudged back to Stellenbosch and reported that they could not mobilize enough burghers for their commander. Once more, the governor's authority was being challenged by the colonists. The governor was displeased, to say the least. He ordered the Landros of Stellenbosch the officers and two felt corporals of the Rudersand area, Jakubus Teron and Jan Kutsir, to appear before him. They dutifully pitched up and received what Nigel Penn calls a rough questioning from the Council of Policy. They had many excuses. There were heavy rains, swollen rivers, grazing was lacking and cold weather discouraged the colonists. It was also time for ploughing and sowing. Farmers were reluctant to go in commando. Then the frontier farmers fired back that the governor should force the men, who they said had instigated the Hottentots, to join the commander. Still, after the tongue-lashing hairdryer treatment, the governor was forced to concede and the commander was postponed until September. 
but their obstinacy was the last straw for the governor, who knew that the rebel Frenchman Barbier must be hunted and brought in, dead or alive. He was single-handedly sowing discontent and disinformation as he sought revenge against the company for turning him, the whistleblower, into the felon. The farmers way out on the Sunfelt, though, were now also experiencing a change of heart. They were aware that they were fighting the company at the same time as facing destruction by the roving Khoisan, who were intent on driving the Dutch back into the sea. Instead of seeking to deploy an olive branch, the vengeful Babir kept barking at the colonists from beyond the Ulifants River, demanding they ignore the company and continue their dispute. He was talking of an armed uprising. But his followers were now tiring of this tirade and began to move away, eventually joining Kreibachen's commando in September 1739. Meanwhile, a new governor had been appointed and Babir was hoping that Hendrik Swellengribel would be sympathetic to his exposure of company corruption. Babir duly went on a letter-writing extravaganza, attacking Johannes Kreivachen once more. Kreivachen was one of the most powerful agrarian capitalists of the northern Cape Frontier zone and one of the wealthiest men in the colony, and now he was directly in Babir's sights. He was a powerful man. Kreivachen had one of the company meet contracts. He could also use the important grazing land of the Groene Kloof, and he had many farms dotted along the west coast and the Bokkerveld. He owned more farms in the Gurits River area of the Southern Cape and at St. Helena Bay. While many frontier farmers hated him, Kreivachen had a great deal of influence over the company and continued to have a say about who would be awarded those important loan farms we've heard about. Little did Babir know that his own end was approaching swiftly and his demise would be both violent and symbolic and brought about by his nemesis, Kreivachen. But that's for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. It helps escalate the visibility. If you want to contact me, you can do so through websites desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Klaas Kruger.